Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 307, Interview with Lou Anders. Brent's left me with the keys to the controls this week, so let's see how it goes. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. This is Brent Bowen and Christy Cherish. And we're thrilled to have our next guest back with us. He's now exclusively a middle grade author, stepping away from Pyre last year to focus on his authorial pursuits and promoting his debut novel, Frostborn. And if we haven't given it away by now, his newest novel, Nightborn, the second of the Thrones and Bones books, publishes mid-July. Lou Anders, it's been about a year. Welcome back to the show, man. It is so good to be back. Glad to have you back. And we spent about the first 20 minutes, I think, chatting about beer, but needed to move away. So not quite not quite on, on brand anymore, is it? You know, my 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 uh, current readership does not drink nearly as much as, uh, <laughs> as the adult science fiction readership does. Or the hosts of this show. <laughs> so definitely, definitely, that definitely fits in that camp. Well, let's let's move away from that topic. We may come back to it at the end because you got you have something to celebrate. Certainly, let let's start with uh, the celebration around uh, around Nightborn. So we were all, so I certainly uh, read Frostborn and was enthralled by the trials you put Karn and Theana in the first book. What trials do you have in store for them here in Nightborn? Well, the first trial is what happens when Karn is removed from Theana. Uh, a lot of people, Theana, was, I, I think, was, was I don't know how do I word this? It, it doesn't make one of my characters sound bad. Theana was very, very popular with lots and lots of readers. And um, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, what if she's popular in his world, too? You know, they've gone their separate ways at the end of book one, spoiler, and he's gone back to his life as a farmer, and people have heard his story now, and everybody wants to hear more about this half-giant girl. And maybe she's as popular in that world as she's been in this one. Hmm. And then she runs into trouble, and he has to go rescue her. So... He has to ask himself, you know, can I? Last time I had an adventure, I had a seven foot tall woman backing me up. I don't have her now. Can I still do the things I did before without a half giant as backup or, or as sidekick? Not sidekick, she's, she's as, as co, co lead, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so the first part of the adventure is his looking, him looking for her and having to face whether or not he can be a hero on his own. Uh, you know, for people who love Theana, she shows up around, you know, a third of the way in, and then they're, then they're together again for the rest of it. The other part of it is, is they really wanted to do a, the first book was, was a chase. They were running for their lives. So the second book is a race. Um, I wanted to kind of do a epic fantasy for kids along the line of the Da Vinci Code, mm. where you have, you know, different shadowy groups with their own agendas chasing after the same missing mystical relic a la tomb raider or, or da vinci code or things like that 
Very cool. That might actually lead into our next question, which is um, you're introducing some new characters in this book. So um, specifically Destra and Tanthal, and I've probably butchered those names. I really hope I didn't. You got um, spot on. I got them. <laughs> All right. That's a first, Brent will tell you. Um, Pronunciations so are problems are us. Yes. Yeah. Especially for the Canadian. Um, but specifically what, you know, what role are they going to play in the book? Well, when you, they're the villains. Um, <laughs> but when, when you meet them, they are taking their final exam in their class. They are in training to join the underhand, which are the secret elite deadly agents of the dark elves. And the way the final exam is played is they take them up top because they live underground into the woods and they play a deadly game of capture the flag where there are no rules and only one team gets to graduate the losing team if they are still standing are, are expelled and the winning team graduates and so when we meet Destra she's she's taking her final exam and I don't really want to spoil how it goes but she uh, she finds herself in, a, in, an, in an awkward position at the end of the final exam very and, cool and you, you hooked me with dark elves <laughs> I, I sort of wonder you know why weren't more books like this around when when I was a kid that had that that kind of fantasy element to it but yeah very cool well you know they're, they're very much a part of Norse mythology and I didn't have room for them in book one and I wanted to bring them in and let them kind of be the you know the the I don't know if you're ready in Fleming but the the Russian organization Smirsh the Spiel Spion Death to spies that Bond used to fight before they created Spectre. Yeah. Oh yeah, and yeah. Uh, I wanted you know I want to have Dark Elves as as the as the as the evil organization. And um, the the interestingly, the, one of the first things I learned was that uh, the Drow of Dungeons and Dragons uh, are not accurate in terms of. I mean, they're, they're accurate because it's Dungeons and Dragons; they do what they want. But but <laughs> Dark Elves uh, in in Norse mythology are not dark skinned. The, uh, really? They're, they're, they're not. They're called. The, I didn't know this. The uh, the Svartalfar, and Svartalfar, uh, it it means swarthy elf, and they are pale white skinned because they live underground, and their hair and eyes are dark. They have black hair and black eyes, but they have pale, pale white skin, corpse white skin, and so the Drow in Dungeons and Dragons reversed that. Yeah. I, I huh. think. By mistake initially, and then it became a thing. So the dark elves of of, of Nightborn are 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 mushroom white with black hair. One of the things, Lou, is as we're talking about Destra and Tonthal, and you were talking about them being, you know, the antagonists or the villains of the book was, you know, you have Destra and Karn spend quite a bit of time together, and the symmetry around how very similar a character they are and the way, because uh, I don't want to give away too much of that opening sequence too, because it was, you know, it was particularly awesome in the capture, the capture, the flag or the capture, the banner scenario, <laughs> but it is just how clever Destra is. And, and the thinking you had as you were writing this book around the juxtaposition of Destra next to Karn and, and their scenes together. Right. I, I, I got this, not only this chase, but this, who can be the better master of uh, how clever 
you know, because we, mm. we certainly think about Karn as being a very clever character from book one, and he's, he's earned that right. And what I thought was particularly effective is early on in the book, you certainly established Destra as being a very clever character. What, what was your thinking kind of putting them side by side like that? Well, I wanted them to have, you know, I wanted him to, when he's looking for Diana, he meets someone that he may have more in common with uh, in some ways. And I, I wanted to, um, to have a character that we would feel sympathy for, but I wanted it to, you know, I think a lot of the tension of the book comes from the fact that because of desperate circumstances and what a complete jerk Tenthal is, you feel a lot of sympathy for her. But ultimately, if she succeeds, our heroes lose. You know, so I, I like that. I, I like this fact that you you don't really know where to place your sympathy because if you root for her too much, you're rooting against against the heroes. And that brings out, matter of fact, there's a particular sequence in in the book where Destra and Karn have a conversation around similarities and differences. And one of the themes I picked up on clearly, obviously, because you have to motivate Karn to get off of the farm. He was very, which we'll get back to in a minute, this acceptance, because the last time we spoke, we, we spoke about these distinctions between middle grade and young adult. So I want to mm. bring that back up here later as we chat. But as we were looking at themes, obviously what motivates Karn is this friendship with Fiona. But obviously there's also this notion of, of understanding that I saw as a theme in the book, particularly of, of our differences. What about those things did you want to explore as you, as you were working on book two? Well, book one is about becoming friends with someone who's different from you. You know, it's about uh, two people who think they have absolutely nothing in common finding out that they, that they complement each other. And so a lot of what I wanted to work out in book two was, because they've got their friendship now, they've got a very, very strong friendship. And what I wanted to, to prod at in book two is what friendship really entails, because it's, it's one thing to like a person. It's another thing to uphold what that person finds valuable, even if it's not what you find valuable. You know, we're getting a little bit into stuff at the end, but where, yeah. where you know, where she, she says to him, you can't just like me. You have to actually, you know, understand what I'm trying to do here. Sure. The motivation so I, component. Right. Yeah. You know, do you, are you friends enough? Are you are you good enough friends with with Theana that you will let Theana go if it's what Theana wants, you know? What else thematically of interest did you want to kind of develop or explore for, for young readers? Because... What's interesting, you go out and look at your website and, and you even, I mean, even in the emails we're exchanging is you're not only an author, but you're an active parent in your own children's lives. Well, there's, and, there's an, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, and uh, you go out, uh, you have a little bit of a tagline or uh, a bit on your website around writing for my children and yours. So for, for our developing readers, what, what other thematically... Because I know you're making very conscious decisions about these themes that you're including in the book. Well, the, the initial theme right off the bat, or, or the initial impulse, was to write a female character who was not relegated to the role of being the sidekick or the clever one 
who made the decisions while the boys got to do all the sword fighting, or as is sometimes the case, the magical one who's there to provide. You know, I, I think back to the original 1960s Batman TV show because you know I'm going to work Batman at some point. <laughs> where um, Yvonne Craig was a martial artist; she was actually a martial artist, and and she got in there ready to fight alongside Burt Ward and Adam West. And a producer said, oh, she can't throw a punch. That's not ladylike. And so all she was allowed to do was kick. Even though she was the only one on set that actually knew martial arts. Knew how to she throw a punch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was not allowed, hand. wasn't allowed to do anything but kick. And, uh, you know, I wanted to have a girl who was the physical one of the team, who was the strong one, the one that was going to bust down the doors and knock heads together. While the boy hung back and said, maybe we don't want to do that. Can we be a little more careful? And I didn't want her to be a sidekick. I wanted her to be a co-lead and the one that was the, the heavy of the group. Beyond that, my, my own children are biracial. And I very much wanted to have uh, a character who was a child of two worlds, who dealt with what it was like to, to, to have a, a mixed heritage and, and dealt with, with prejudice and questions of where they fit in. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to have a character that my children could see themselves in one day. Did not realize until very recently how, how much Leonard Nimoy was an influence in that, with the portrayal mm -hmm. of Spock. Mm -hmm. On the and uh, beyond that too, uh, there are other things that I that I that I think um, come out in the series. Um, I think that uh, you you may notice that no matter how bad the monsters are, people are always worse. Uh, most of my monsters are pretty straightforward. Uh, they'll kill you, but they won't lie to you. Mm -hmm. And it's the people who are deceptive. The monsters are pretty much behaving according to their nature, but they're also talking. You know, at the end of the first book, uh, Helltopper tells Karn that he played a good game. You know, uh, the monsters are are pretty straight up, whereas the people are pretty deceptive. You're including elves in the people count, right? Yes, yes. And uh, but um, but just want to be clear: there's a little yes, exchange yes. between Theana and Orm in the book around yes, he, around yes. humans. He's confused by that. I want to. But my my yeah. on the most part, my dragons and trolls and tetzel worms and things are pretty honest folk. They're not nice, but they're not they're not deceptive. And then finally, too, I, you know, uh, I have no interest in writing about chosen ones and, and prophecies and and something that only one person could do and no one else can. Um, I I think that I'm I'm I, you probably will never see that in one of my books, and if you do, it'll be subverted somehow. And, and then finally, too, I, and I don't want to sound pretentious, but um, I I think that you know I just saw online where the director of the new the upcoming Suicide Squad movie says this movie's so dark we have to have a therapist on set for the actors and. <laughs> Uh, first of all, you don't. The only reason you have a therapist on set is so you can have that talking point where you tell the press that you had to have a therapist on set. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing the therapist is there for. But two, why is that a selling point? Why is that a selling point at all? I, I, I mean, I, I like some pretty dark stuff. I like some pretty dark books and I like some pretty dark television. And, you know, I like it because it's well written and it happens to be dark. I don't like it because it's dark. And I, I feel like we're we're almost in a period where people just want to see how brutal and unsettling they can be for the sake of being brutal and unsettling. And it kind of, um, the other day I realized, not to go back to Star Trek again, but I realized that this, as all the uh, racism that's in the news these days and all, all the, uh, the hate that's out there, it's really a bad thing that, there, that there's not a Star Trek show on TV right now, just showing us a future where different people get along. You know, as, as, as goofier as Star Trek can sometimes be, it's an important cultural meme that, hey, maybe we don't have to hate. And I think that not having that on a primetime show right now is, is, a, is actually bad.
because we we seem to have plenty of counterexamples to to people getting along. And one of the things I want to do is present uh, children with a world where different people work out their differences without having to kill each other. Yeah. One thing that really strikes me is, is you, you're making a lot of conscious decisions in your writing about um, introducing themes for children. And um, one thing I, I was thinking about while, while you were talking about that was how do you write it in and keep it entertaining? Because kids aren't stupid. They know as soon as you're trying to shove something down their throats. Well, I mean, when I'm when I'm writing it, I'm not thinking about what's the theme here. I'm thinking uh, it's almost more like I've set out a list of things I won't do. Mm-hmm. And then now that I know what I want to, I'm just concentrating on telling a fun story. So, you know, I'm what's a cool monster that can go here? What's an interesting way to defeat that monster? What's a funny line the monster can say before it's defeated? Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, I made the mistake of having my first couple of monsters be humorous. And now my editor wants all my monsters to be funny. Uh. But you know, every, every monster has to be funny in a, in a different way. So, so I'm, 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 I hope my monsters, my monsters are probably going to to hire a gag writer at some point you know I, i'm not i'm not sitting there trying to, to to put a lesson in i've just sort of defined the space in which i'm working and then i'm just bringing what i what i have to offer in terms of telling a good story within the confines of that space yeah and let's let's talk about one of those humorous monsters monsters because i was gonna i wanted to ask you about is it the tatel worm yeah i like that yeah the tatel worm in particular and um Without giving away too much, how long have you... Yeah, because I did want to... You do such an excellent job of blending in, whether you're doing it... con I know you're doing it consciously, but working within your space and dealing with the nuance of the conflict, but yet at the same time being able to introduce humor. That scene with the Tatesel Worm, how long have you been waiting to write that scene where Catnip was going to play a major role... <laughs> And you know, because it was like we're subtle. We're working through these beautiful conflicts of understanding differences, and then all of a sudden we break out catnip for the monster. Uh, <laughs> how long have you been waiting to write that scene? I, this is a two part. I mean, one, I it's very important to me that monsters are part of the the ecology. They're part of the flora and fauna of the place where where it, you know I, I don't I, I don't like dungeon crawls where you turn a corner and there's a mummy and then you turn a corner and there's an ogre and then you turn a quarter and there's a hobgoblin and I like monsters to belong to the landscape in the same way that plants and animals do so you're not going to get trolls outside of Nordengard in my books and in Nightborn we go the country of Nalinia and Nalinia is sort of one part Switzerland and one part the place where I have big stupid cosmopolitan fantasy cities that are bigger than anything that that existed in in actual Europe you know I, I try very hard to keep uh the rest of the countries around there realistic in terms of they're modeled very closely on, on what was actually around in the high middle ages but i wanted one place where i could say no this is the stupid gigantic fantasy city and uh and this is the the place that you know it has elves and dwarves and gnomes and rat folk all walking around together and so it's it's half fantasy it's it's half generic fantasy country and half switzerland and when I started looking into the specific mythology of Switzerland, uh, which is hard to do because Switzerland is, you know, the, the old confederacy of Switzerland is, 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 is actually not that old. And before that, Switzerland was run by Habsburgs from Germany and different peoples. And it wasn't really the country that it is now. So 
just peeling out distinctly Swiss mythology was hard. But I came across the tassel worm and just fell in love with it. And uh, it's it's such a an interesting monster. For listeners who don't know, it's the front paws and head of a of a of a, like a mountain lion or cougar in the back body of a snake. And it it's also called a spring worm because it can jump so far. And uh, in terms of the catnip, I built a role-playing game after I wrote Frostborn, but before I sold it. And I've started working on a sandbox adventure for the role-playing game. And in it, I had an encounter with the tassel worm, and I was building it for my son to play, and I wanted to give him a way out, and so I came up with a catnip vent. And then the book sold, and I put the role-playing game on the back burner, and I went back to working on Nightborn. And initially... Nightborn was just leaving Norengard and going to Gordasha, the city that we end up in at the end of, of Nightborn. And I realized that, you know, when you have these kind of Da Vinci Code, relic hunter type stuff, you, you don't just go from point A to point B. You always go to, to A to B to C to get, and then the supervillain hideout, you know. And and I needed a, an intermediary destination. And so I, I had been doing all this world building for the game. And I thought, well, let's plug it in. And we'll, I use some of the same characters that I hope to use in the game one day. And that's and so I grabbed the tasel worm and stuck it in. And that's where the catnip comes in. That's where the catnip comes in. Yeah. So from a from a conscious decision standpoint, so I'm going to ask you uh, about conscious decisions here because there's a juxtaposition of the catnip and the the tetzel worm, and then I think it's a chapter later you have an introduction of I, I'm just going to say pork. So you have these pig characters that are introduced. <laughs> So, for, are you really trying to create an internet meme? I, I'm convinced that you're going the Scalzi route very subtly, and you didn't even realize it within the book. What, what do you mean the Scalzi you, you route? Know, you know cats and bacon are like the two most searched things on the internet. The, um, I was convinced I, you're, you're, playing to, you're playing to your audience here. Luke. No, no, I'm, I, I'll tell you. <laughs> you the way you that... might bask it all in history, but I don't. I'm not buying any of it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I was just laughing when I was reading that. I'm like, are you kidding me? He has cats, and then the next chapter he has bacon. <laughs> no, I. Um, the bacon is. Uh, I very as much as I love Tolkien, and I love Tolkien. It always bothered me that orcs were just uh, a degenerate race that was that was okay to just wipe out. And years ago, before I ever had any notion of writing this book i said one day if i write a fantasy you know my orcs are not going to be Tolkien's this orcs, this yeah. backward slobbery cannibalistic race they're going to be the most sophisticated people on the planet and so when i when i got here i was like oh my gosh this is this is where they go the Iscariot are are basically um you know they're philosophers and poets and astronomers and mathematicians and lovers of floral arrangement poetry and dance who have a cultural mandate to take over the whole world for its own good and they're they're my works so you give them some distinction yep through that activity yeah, I just I, I couldn't help but go to the humorous side just finishing the, the scene with the catnip and then I was still <laughs> you still had me in that mood. How has the interaction been with both young and older fans? Because I'm I'm guessing you've I I certainly was a fan of yours from your pyre days and from seeing you on panels and such at um, all the different conventions. So how how has that translated over? 
You know, it it it. Uh, the first thing that happened was that, and, and as as, li- as longtime listeners of this show know, I had a vocabulary like a sailor. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, Sean would be like, I, I would I would do an interview with Sean, and then I would listen to it because I'm egomaniac and I have to listen to to the, every podcast I'm on um, the minute it drops. And um, Sean would be like, this episode is neither work safe nor child safe. And I'd be like, what? What are you talking about? And I'd listen to how many F-bombs I would drop. And she'd be like, okay, I'll do better next time. And then uh, once again, this episode is neither work safe nor child safe. And the book sold. And my wife said, you're going to scrub your vocabulary. And I said, what are you talking about? She says, you don't swear anymore. I said, I can, I can turn it on off. She says, no, you can't. You, you need to stop now. I said, well, the book doesn't come out for a year. And she says, yep. And that's what it's going to take. You're going to spend a year so that so that when you're up on stage in front of you know, a bunch of fifth graders, you don't accidentally fall, get nervous and fall back on something. And so she made me stop swearing one year in advance of the book coming out. And it's so funny. I'm such a hypocrite because now when people swear, I'm like, you don't have to use that word, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was the worst offender. And uh, so that was the first change. And then I talked, you know, I'd done public speaking for 15 years, but I had never spoken to anyone below college age. And I went on a book tour and they, they flew me all over the country and I was just thrown in. I was one of the third or fourth stops I made. I walked out into a gymnasium and there were 600 kids. And uh, I must have run to the bathroom five times before they... <laughs> <laughs> introduced me. I was so nervous. And I found out that I love talking to kids. And the more kids, the better. And my my, my absolute favorite thing is to have a wireless microphone and, a, and, a, and an auditorium full of kids because I, I can't sit still. I run, I'm like Phil Donahue running around with my microphone saying, how about your Oprah? What do you think? What do you think? Oprah doesn't run around, though, does she? I, uh, I, I, can't, I can't stay on the stage. I leap off the stage and run up around the stands and ask tons of questions and st- stick microphones in faces and have an absolute blast. And they are so fun to talk to. And they're such a, an engaged and enthusiastic audience. And it's, it's a very different. I mean, I was I was talking to a, 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 a an alternative Montessori type school in Colorado, and a little girl on the front row just farted so loudly, and and I, and everybody just cracked up. And I was like, so glad that wasn't me. And <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that happened at the convention, um, but it's just it's a it's a different audience. They ask really interesting questions, and they're very free with with their their thoughts and feelings, and they're engaged. I mean, it's 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 and and the stuff is fun. It's just really fun, you know. They they know when they like something. They're really really enthusiastic. And I found out that that's my. I love talking to this age group. Um, one of the things you know, the books have uh, games in the back and the appendices, and kids around the country have have made their own board games and and sent me pictures. And and a lot of my stops, uh, kids will come in who have made the game and want to play against me. And that's awesome. Oh, it's fun. incredible to play a board game you designed with a kid who's come to your signing so they can play you in the board game because they've been playing it at home. And that's amazing. And there's a, a child in, in Britain who was five when he read the book, which is, I think, my youngest reader, who cosplayed it and uh, sent me pictures of him dressed as corn. And I had a, a, a young girl come to a signing and, and thump her chest and say, I am Theana. <laughs> and that was magnificent. And uh, I, I made the trading cards that I give out that are like fake 
you know, they're not fake. They're like faux Magic the Gathering or Pokemon style cards in that they have statistics that don't really refer to anything, but they look like game cards. Mm-hmm. And I get those out. My my publisher, the marketing department, saw them, fell in love with them, and they then started producing them. And they just sent me last week the preview of, of Series 2, which will be a shrink wrap set of 10. But uh, we've got a shrink wrap sets of five right now, and they're gonna they're gonna do a whole new design with a set of ten for Nightborn's release. But uh, I went to one school in in Huntsville, Alabama, and I gave out the cards. And I was leaving the parking lot. A kid comes up to me to ask, "How do you play these?" And uh, he had like thirty of them. And I said, "How did you get so many?" And he said, I'm "Offering a dollar a card." <laughs> so there's a, wow. he's I'm digging into something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's been magnificent. And then in in terms of adult interaction, you know, one of my favorite reviews that I've gotten a lot with book two is I don't usually like kids books or I don't usually like middle grade books, but I love this. And uh, I love getting those reviews. But there's a the boy that cosplays is actually the son of a of a guy who goes by the handle RPG Gamer Dad, and RPG Gamer Dad does a podcast where he plays role playing games with his five now six-year-old son and sometimes his two or three-year-old daughter and his his wife and uh, the thrust of the podcast is playing role-playing games with children and they uh i i met them online because they were reading my book and loving it and so i reached out to them and we started talking and and they just concluded a, a three-part uh podcast series where they fate accelerated role-playing game from evil hat in the setting of the thrones and bones books they actually statted out Karn and Theana for for Fate Accelerated, and then they played a, a three episode long. It was four parts in three episodes um, series where they played Karn and Theana in the role playing game, and um, I cannot tell you what an absolute thrill that was. Especially to have like the parents to get feedback that both the parents and the kids are enjoying the book and are able yes. to enjoy it together. That's it, it's it's really that's part of what you're aiming for. I think yeah, with, with our, kids RPG Gamer Dad has said that uh, he has <laughs> that, that up until this point, their story time, only one of them ever enjoyed it. If he read something he enjoyed, his kid was bored. If he read something his kid enjoyed, he was bored. And the reason he reached out to me is he said it was the first thing he'd read his child that he was equally as into. And uh, that's one of the things the series is getting is that it's a good read aloud. And I really like uh, I really like that. It's seeing them play the game together was just magnificent. Yeah, I remember last time when you were with us last time and you had, you were treating the series almost like you would treat a game. When I remember you were kind of coining the phrase, not, you know, 8 to 12 because it's middle grade, but 8 and up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 8 and up. So that's very cool. I was wondering about the RPG component because I had seen a couple mentions by the – who. what's the podcast again? We'll make sure we get that in the show it's, notes. It's, it's the RPG Gamer Dad podcast. Podcast, because I saw mentions of that and was – uh, hadn't had a chance to go through and listen to them yet, but was wondering whether your RPG had launched or whether it had been it, the character. It sounds like the characters have been woven into a different a different game, right? Yeah, I built a percentile based RPG that was um, basically influenced by my memories of the James Bond role playing game from Victory Games, which was a magnificent game that came out in the early '90s or late '80s. That uh, it, it it sold really really well for a couple of years, and then they lost the license to do Bond, then it disappeared. Mm. And it was my favorite role-playing game for years. And and then Call of Cthulhu was my other favorite role-playing game. And and so I kind of took those systems and mashed them together and probably 
I just re- recreated RuneQuest without knowing it, <laughs> since I've never played RuneQuest <laughs> and, and wasn't aware of its mechanic until very recently. But we uh, we took that to Gen Con uh, a couple years ago and playtested it with a table full of, of just fantasy writers, Saladin Ahmed and Scott Lynch and David Gross and Howard Andrew Jones ran the game, let me actually be a player in my own game. And that was a ball. But in between doing that and and moving forward with it, uh, Evil Hat came out with their big Kickstarter for the Fate role-playing game system. And I have fallen in love with Fate. It is such an interesting game. It is such an interesting system. And it's, um, without going into a lot of detail about it, it's the closest I've ever seen the process of writing modeled in game terms. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that it's a storytelling game, although it is, but I mean that the ways that the things that you can do according to the mechanics seem to track very closely to the way that at least I think about story and specifically scene. And uh, it's doing all kinds of crazy things in my head. So um, <laughs> I've started rolling my system into fate on a okay. very long development cycle because where my system and fate were the same, it, it scratched the same itches, and where they were different, I think they did it better, frankly. So uh, I've been rolling it into that on a very slow development cycle. But they have a, 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 a I guess, a, an even, it's a rules-light system, but they have an even rules-lighter system called Fate Accelerated, and uh, which is a very rules-light system. And and so RPG Gamer Dad used Fate Accelerated to uh, to power a Thrones and Bones game. Very interesting. Well, we'll have to check out, because I'm not familiar with Fate. I will... No, neither. Yeah, we'll uh, certainly... Well, I'll tell you briefly, if you don't mind, because yeah, it's... it's, no. it's Sure, absolutely. Every character has uh, what are called aspects, and you, you come up with your high concept, your trouble, and some other aspects. Hmm. And it's player-driven, so you might say, well, my character's high concept is I am the only surviving member of the red hand of Ichigumi, and we were all assassins, and I'm the only one left. And my trouble is, is I can't uh, say no to a pretty face. And my other aspect is, is I'm a fantastic swordsman. And then you're playing the game, and you're trying to accomplish something, and the the game master says well there's a you know you, you need to you need to do such and such but the game master says well there's a really good looking guy there and you go well i can't say no to a pretty face so um <laughs> maybe i'm getting maybe i'm getting distracted now and you either have to spend a fate point to avoid giving into your trouble or you can say okay i'll take the fate point and that you earn a fate point and then you have to accept the story complication you know, your your complication might be likes shiny objects, so your character can't help but steal something when they're supposed to be doing something else. else. Yeah, you know, yeah. you've been sent to get the the map, but you happen to notice the jeweled dagger in the case next to it that's covered in alarm systems. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you say, well, I, I I will accept the compel, and I will try and do this thing that's not in my best interest because that's who my character is. Yeah. And uh, and at the same time, you, you can call upon your aspects. So you say, somebody's trying to lure you into a trap or something. You say, well, my character is the last surviving member of the of the Red Hand of Ichigumi. Don't you think as the last surviving member that maybe I'm better at avoiding traps than the rest of them who all got killed? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to... Spend a fate point to improve my chances of not falling into this trap based on the fact that I think my character is somebody who's more cautious than normal. 
and that's how plays shape. Very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot yeah. of those aspects remind me of story in the bag kind of prompts and mm-hmm. yeah, total yeah. total story creation. Very Absolutely. very cool. Speaking act speaking of story creation, um, it's almost been a year now that you've been exclusively um, on the author side. How are you liking it? I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> I am loving it. Have there been any aspects of it that have been surprising or that you weren't expecting? Challenges or good things? <laughs> well, I, I think the, the first challenge was writing my first sequel because before Frostborn sold, I'd written two other manuscripts that uh, had not sold, but they were both book ones in potential series. And Nightborn was the first time I had to write a sequel. And and I uh, found coming back to the same characters and, and having to make it all new and fresh again really interesting you know how do you how do you find new challenges for people that have pretty much had all their problems solved in book one and um in terms of uh being on this side of the desk i'm for the most part pretty easy to work with because i know what my publisher needs when they need it and i usually get them stuff ahead of time Mm -hmm. um you know I, i sent them tons of biographical information and a list of all my contacts and places that I thought would, it would give me, you know, would be open to, to being uh, like, like Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Uh, that I had <laughs> friends and contacts and relationships, and I, I, I even sent them a teaching guide, and they were like, aren't you precious? We have, we have people to do that. But, uh, but I, you know, I tried to anticipate uh, everything that they would need before they would need it and get it to them. Uh, the, I think that more than editing because I I, I I find it very hard right now to think about anyone's story but my own so I'm now reading what the stuff that I'm reading at a just glacial pace but the thing that I probably do miss is art directing working with artists and I love 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 artists and working with artists and stuff and so I haven't stopped doing that I especially because I, I was working you know on this slow burn RPG I've continued to commission art it's just art for me now and so I'm still art directing all the time in fact uh, when Nightborn debuts which is will have probably already happened by the time it's aired since it comes out Tuesday we're debuting the Nightborn trailer and there's a piece of art in, in the Nightborn trailer that is a, a full painted scene that Andrew Bosley did that's just absolutely magnificent it's a rooftop fight Castlebriar and art directing that was a ball and uh, and and, and to be clear some people are confused i don't i don't art direct the covers at random house because they have a wonderful art department that does that but i am art directing art that i am commissioning alongside of what they're doing and that's Mm -hmm. a ball and we've between what random house has done and what i have done we probably have 60 or 70 individual pieces of art now associated with the series and we're just on on book two that's fantastic. Well, I, I, I just, I remember listening to you talk about artwork on covers at some of the conventions was always a huge highlight. So it doesn't surprise me that you conti- that that's something you've continued with is, is your love of just artistic representation of your books. Well, you know, what's so funny is that I, I went to New York after I signed the deal and I met with my editor and we went out to lunch and we talked about cover art and I get, and she asked for some recommendations and I gave her a list of five artists I'd love to see on the cover. And we, we, uh, they actually let me have more input than I expected, and we whittled it down to Justin Gerard, and who's fabulous. And then they said, "Okay, so you can't talk to him." They uh, they were very concerned <laughs> that I not step on their art depart their art department's toes. And I know Justin, and I was not allowed to speak to him while he was working on the first cover. And I uh, I almost I was still working as an editor and art director at the time, so I almost thought about giving him a job just to make it <laughs> that much more awkward. But 
when I was an art director, we did the Vampire Empire books from Clay and Susan Griffith. And I always told my authors, you know, you don't want the artist coming in and rewriting your last chapter or telling you you need to change a scene. So you don't get to tell them how to paint. You know, they've spent <laughs> their life, they've spent their life becoming the artist that they are, which is why we're working with them. You have not spent your life becoming an artist. You spent your life becoming a writer. So, you you know, you don't want them interfering with your talent. You're not going to interfere with theirs. But what you can do is you can front load them with as much as you want. So give me everything you'd like to see and everything you think needs to be in it. And we'll give that to the artist and then we'll step away. And, um, and Clay and Susan took me serious and they made this like 20 page PDF document where they had taken images of the actors that they would cast in the role. And then they had gone through fashion magazines and clipped out dresses and pants and shirt and and then they had clipped out pictures of weapons and they had put them all together like paper dolls so they're like you know this is famke jensen wearing this sarong carrying this scimitar with this necklace (laughs) (laughs) and i saw that thing and i was terrified chris mcgrath was the artist and i i I called him up and i said chris i'm gonna send something to you because i promised i would but uh don't freak out uh don't think this is my brief you know, this is not a mandate. This is just use whatever part you think is helpful and throw the rest out. And he actually thought it was great and and did some three fabulous covers for us. So the minute they told me I couldn't speak to Justin, I went home and I spent the rest of the day putting together a 20-page PDF document. <laughs> okay, this is, this is the actor that would play Karn. This is the actress that would play Theana. This is what they're wearing. This is the sword. Notice it has a single fuller and a double fuller. It's got an oval guard with a round pommel. Uh, you know, it's, it's, this is, this is the, what this looks like. This is what that looks like. And I sent it to the art department, and they gave it to Justin. And I didn't know how it was received, but then when it came time to book two, they're like, have you sent Justin your art brief yet? <laughs> so, so your art reference, not a brief, your art reference. So now every book I, I'm expected to put together a 20-page PDF document to keep to keep everybody on point. Lou, it didn't include the fractal too, did it? The fractal. <laughs> what, do we, what do you mean the fractal? Your your Google Earth world that you built. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Um, I do include those maps, and oh, and that's geez. the other thing is that. Um, Again, back when, when I was an art director, when we, we did, uh, and, and an editor, I, we did three books with Erin Hoffman. And when uh, when we, I was working with Erin, she said, Lou, I'll have a map for you in, in, a, in a month. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, we do the maps. And she goes, no, I want to do my own map. And I said, Erin, we can pay for your map. Uh, it's not a problem. We put maps in many of our fantasy books. We'll do your map. And she goes, you understand, I want to own my map. I want it to be my map. I will get you the map. And I always felt really guilty that Aaron had paid for her map. No one else paid for their map. And I saw my book, and I just this light bulb went off. And I said, "Aaron is a genius. <laughs> I am gonna. I'm done doing the map before anybody else has a chance to ruin it." And um, I, 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 I got in touch with Rob Lazaretti, who does used to work for TSR and does maps for the Pathfinder role playing game, and, and hired him to do all the maps. And we've done seven maps together, six of which are now public on the thronesandbones.com website. The seventh will be made public next year. And uh, he's amazing to work with. But um, but when I work with Rob on maps, there's this program you alluded to, Fractal Terrain 3 from Pro Fantasy Software. And it's an amazing, uh, basically, paint program for creating fantasy worlds. It's, it's built for RPG gamers, but uh, fantasy authors, some fantasy authors use it too. 
it's it's this incredible tool where they use fractals to generate a world and they do that instantaneously so you can sit there hit and refresh and spin through like 50 worlds in 50 seconds but then once you've found the general shape of your planet they uh, give you all these paint tools they're just remarkable you can go in and, and and lower elevation or increase rainfall or change the average temperature or, or anything and you can do things like you, you can you can you can have different brushes that control different environmental factors or or or, or, or elevations or you can go in and filter you can say select every place on my planet that is i don't know 500 feet above sea level now let's raise the average rainfall per annual rainfall by three inches a year everywhere else outside you know and so the the, the amount of control you have is incredible and i spent two weeks uh, doing nothing but full-time painting uh, my world until I had it exactly like I wanted it. And uh, once it was done, you can go in and you can zoom in on areas. And you, you can, if you drag between any two points, you can know exactly the distance. You can say this point and this point is exactly 80.6 miles apart. And by the way, I know the elevation, rainfall, and temperature of every place in between. And so when I, when I work with Rob on a map, I zoom in on the area we're going to map, and then I send him a screenshot of what it looks like in fractal terrains, along with exact measurements on everything. And then he's able to take that and hand draw a map that looks much better than what I can. Someone more talented than I am could create a really good looking map in fractal terrains. But for me, it's just a reference that I then give Rob, who then does it. Lou, you touched on this a bit earlier, but as you know, a lot of the folks that listen to the show are aspiring writers. And the last time we got together on the show, I asked you this question about the distinctions between middle grade and, and young adults and adult fiction. And you, you kind of painted some definitions around the distinction and it. It occurred to me with book two, so I think the distinction, I'm going to paraphrase, your distinction was around, you know, middle grade being you're, you're the child and no one believes that you can do X, Y, or Z, and it's about you discovering that you're able to do X, Y, and Z. And it occurred to me that at the opening of book two, Karn is very comfortable in his place in the world. About being, and even then, at some extent, he's kind of thrust into this needing to find Theana, but he seems very comfortable with his identity. So, with book two, you've got that initial exploration of you're the kid, you're not able to do to do this. But for Karn, he's accomplished so much in book one. How how were you able to kind of maintain that definition with with Karn within that middle grade category and and that definition you kind of provided? Well, I think with him specifically, it's the fact that he, he's had to confront the fact that maybe his confidence comes from the fact that he had a seven-foot-tall half-giant. <laughs> and without the seven-foot-tall half-giant, could he still have done all the things that he did? Yeah, sure. And he's really not sure. You know, it, it, uh, and then also I, I did it by, you know, by cheating and introducing a new character. <laughs> because, because we, you know, our, our, uh, the, the character with the, with, the, with the longest journey to make is, of course, Destra. Destra, sure. And that's where I thought that introduction, and it, just as we break that down, break down that definition, I, I know in talking with folks that book two can always be the most challenging, and it occurred to me, as I was thinking about our prior our prior conversation conversation that definition and saying Karn is such a confident character at this point 
Uh, although the Theana angle makes a, a great deal of sense, I appreciate. I appreciate that. Well, it also too. I mean, and, and something that might be more uh, a more instructive response for me is that uh, I, I keep going back to the core theme of friendship. And so, in the first one, it's just learning that you can be friends with someone who's different. And in the second one, it's examining what that friendship entails and means. And just as their friendship deepens across book one and book two, uh, or it doesn't deepen, I think their friendship is as deep as it can get. I think their friendship evolves in terms of their understanding of what their friendship means for them. Uh, in the same way, Destra will will evolve her understanding of what she's about in book three. So, uh, you know, we kind of have leapfrogging characters where, where Karn's journey to, uh, to understand what his friendship with Theana is takes two books. And then Destra starts off in book two and will carry to book three. So uh, that's the other way I'm doing it. It's, it's going back to the definition and then extending that definition for each of the characters. Thank you. That'll that was most mm. that'll be most helpful for for me and other other. Yeah. It's, it's much selfishly for me, really. We always have such a great time with you, and you've been more than gracious with your time. Anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners that we may have missed? Ooh, um, I'm sure there's a thousand things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, where where can folks find you? If well, folks I'm fans very, the, very fans accessible. My, my wife won't connect to me on any social media platform <laughs> because of that reason. Um, but live and in person, but, do you have any stops live and in person? Oh, yes. I, if you go to louanders.com, there's a list of events. But I'll be at DragonCon and the Decatur Book Festival in the same weekend. That's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm doing uh, a number of book fairs. I don't do as many conventions these days, but I do a lot of book fairs. I'm doing one in Tennessee in, in October, I think. it's on, Again, it'll be on the website website at lewanders.com and um i'll be on tour around the southeast in the fall in texas i'm gonna be at books of wonder on the 26th of july in new york city excellent well folks can find you live and that really is going to be the aim for me and christy at some point is to find you in person go to thronesandbones.com where there are character art six maps a game an audio sample a reading sample uh screen savers if you can find them because they're kind of hidden i mean uh, uh, wallpapers and um and soon to be a second game and um and then i've got a whole bunch of other stuff at lewanders.com and i am everywhere i'm on tumblr and instagram and facebook and twitter Lou, like I said, man, as always, it's been it's been great to speak with you, and I, I think the goal for for me and Christy, if we can't make it to the southeast, is some time where we can catch up in person and and celebrate the series over uh, over a nice craft beer. So we'll we'll try and find a way to make that happen. Only a well craft beer, man. Some of the. <laughs> some of the some of the APDs between you're between some between of the. A- the- Three of us? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, One each at least, I'm saying. But some of the APVs you're drinking. <laughs> I'm good for at least two bombers. Okay, two. Um, two. I wasn't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know Christy's belt level there. <laughs> I'm good for two bombers and whatever she leaves of hers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's already taking yours. All right. Well, that sounds like the I best time ever. <laughs> What's that, Christy? I can hold my own. All right. <laughs> well, like like I said, it's been awesome, and I can't wait to do that in person sometime. So we'll we'll definitely need to figure out how to make Dragon Con. Uh, Excellent. So we can do that. Uh, Lou, again, thanks. All right. Thank you very much. And congrats on everything. Thank you. And it's, this has been fun. 
Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. Thank you.